to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. And I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent." Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Please join me in prayer. Oh, Father, we do thank you that you have called us into your house this morning. Lord, that you've enabled us to worship you, that you've given us new hearts, a desire to please you. And Lord, we pray that you would give us the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit this morning as we take a look at your letter to the church in Ephesus. And Lord, we pray that by your Spirit, you would work in our hearts. Lord, that you would convict us, that you would encourage us, and that you would build us up. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We live lives that are full of evaluations. Seems like everywhere that we turn, we are being evaluated. Uh, From kindergarten all the way up until college, and for some postgraduate studies, uh, you're being evaluated. You're taking tests. You're having teachers evaluate what are your strengths, what are your weaknesses. If you have a driver's license, at some point you went to the Department of Motor Vehicles, and you had to be evaluated. The driving instructor needed to know that you knew the rules of the road, that you could uh, safely operate a vehicle. It's an evaluation. If you get a new job, you'll likely be placed upon a a probationary period where the uh, employer wants to find out if the new job is going to work out for you. So evaluations happen all the time. And in Revelation chapter 2 to 3, what we have is uh, three different sections in these two chapters where the risen Christ is evaluating the spiritual health of seven different churches. He's evaluating the spiritual health of seven different churches, showing them where their strengths are, showing them where their weaknesses are, and showing them uh, especially what needs to be brought into alignment. And the first church that we have in these two chapters, Revelation chapter 2 and 3, is the church in Ephesus. And we find out in these seven short verses that the church in Ephesus is applauded for tenaciously holding to sound, healthy doctrine. They have faithfully maintained their healthy doctrine, and yet their love for Christ and his people is growing cold, or rather has grown cold. 
rather than warm and zealous works of love for Christ and his people, the church in Ephesus could be characterized as cold Christianity. And so what I want us to do this morning is to briefly look at four different points. Uh, The context, looking at a few introductory issues for the church in Ephesus. The commendation that Christ gives to the church. The criticism that Christ has for the church. And a command that Christ issues to the church. And the, the doctrine of the text that I want to put before us this morning is this. That faithful Christian living requires both a passion for sound doctrine and a zealous love for Christ and his people. I'll repeat that. That faithful Christian living requires both a passion for sound doctrine and zealous love for Christ and his people. So let's look first at our first point, the the context Three issues that we'll, we'll take up dealing with the, the context of the church in Ephesus. And that would be the identification of the, the lampstands, the angel, and then uh, some special information regarding the church in Ephesus. Uh, the first question that we need to address is the identity of the lampstands. Uh, in chapter 1, verse 20 we are told that uh, Christ actually gives us the interpretation of what the stars and the lampstands are that are first introduced in verse 12. Verse 12, the Apostle John has a vision of the risen Christ, and he says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. And the difficult thing about the book of Revelation, as many of us know, is it is a very symbolic book, uh, full of different uh, symbols and imagery that sometimes can uh, trip up the Bible interpreter. And yet a, a wonderful principle that we have for interpreting the scriptures is that we interpret what is unclear in light of what is clear, rather than the other way around. And Christ, in chapter 1, verse 20, gives us the interpretation of what the seven stars and seven lampstands are. Look in verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So when Christ is speaking about the lampstands, he's referring to the seven churches. When he is referring to the seven stars, it is a reference to the angel. Now looking at the angel in in, uh, chapter 2, verse 1, it says to the angel of the church in Ephesus. This angel has been understood a a few different ways. Very often in the scripture, we see that the the Greek term for angel is translated as uh, an angelic spiritual being that we would typically think about when we hear the word angel. But in other places in the New Testament, the Greek word for angel can be interpreted and translated as simply a messenger, such as in Mark chapter 1 verse 2. 
where the text says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The word there in the Greek text is the same word that we typically translate as angel, but there the context determines that this is a human messenger. And so many commentators believe that the angel of the church in Ephesus is either a uh, collective reference to the elders of the church, those who have spiritual oversight of the church, or it's a reference to the head pastor who has spiritual oversight. So Christ is writing or having this letter sent to the leadership of the church in Ephesus. And a third point that we will look at regarding the context is that the church in Ephesus had a, has a rich history in the biblical text. And the church in Ephesus also had a great privilege that not many other churches could claim. Uh, the church in Ephesus at throughout their history, sat under the teaching of the Apostle Paul. They sat under the teaching of the Apostle John. And they sat under the teaching of Timothy, Apostle Paul's successor. In Acts chapter 20, Paul declares to the Ephesians that he has uh, explained and expounded to them the the whole counsel of God. That's that's quite a privilege to have the Apostle Paul teach, teach your church. And so they certainly have been given great privileges. We'll come back to that later on in the text. Second, let's look at the commendation. If we look at verse 1, we see that it says, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. It is Christ who holds in his hands the seven churches, that he holds them, he protects them, he cares for them, he provides for them. Uh, In John chapter 10, verse 29, uh, Jesus is able to say, My Father who has given them, that is Christians to me, is still greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand because he protects them. Not only does he does Christ protect them, but he walks among the churches. This is the risen Christ who is described as eyes of fire, who is able to see all that is taking place in these seven churches. Nothing escapes his view. He is quietly evaluating how they are doing, and he knows what their strengths and weaknesses are. If you look at verse 2, we see the beginning of some of these strengths. He applauds them for their toil, their patient endurance, that they cannot bear with those who have evil. They've tested these false apostles. It seems that this church has worked hard to maintain their doctrinal purity. It may be a situation like the uh, Christians that the uh, that the letter of, uh, letter of Jude addresses, where there were false teachers who slipped in quietly and were trying to propagate false teaching. Uh, whatever the circumstances are, it is clear that the church in Ephesus wanted nothing to do with false teaching. They wanted nothing to do with false teaching. They tested those who were false apostles. We also see that it is hard work 
to maintain this high standard of doctrinal purity. Christ also commends them for not growing weary. He commends them for not growing weary, but rather for keeping up a high standard. Just this past month, I got done taking uh, some written exams and an oral exam for our presbytery uh, as I'm pursuing licensure. And it was an exhausting experience to be able to to take those exams and then uh, sit for about a a four-hour examination. Uh, But not only is it exhausting for the candidates who go through, but as I uh, thought about it, it's also quite exhausting uh, for those who are doing the interviewing, for those who are uh, examining each of the candidates. Because while the candidate only has to go through uh, one time, those who are examining do this over and over and over. Months on end, over and over and over, uh, to maintain a high standard of doctrinal purity. And it would be very easy to just lower the bar and say we're not going to take a close look at uh, men's theology and beliefs. Well, it is a good thing that we keep a, a high standard, and I appreciate so much that our, our denomination, and particularly our presbytery, has high standards. And I believe it is important that we continue that because it's important to Christ to keep a high standard. These verses also teach us that Christ commends this church in Ephesus for their hatred of particular works. If you look at verse 6, it says, Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And there's a, there's a bit of mystery that, shroud, that shrouds the, uh, the sect, the uh, heretical group of the Nicolaitans. We're not entirely sure of their origins, who they are. Uh, but whatever it is, they were directly contradicting the clear apostolic teaching that was delivered to this church. And Christ commends this church for their hatred of these works. Now, we should note that he does not say, I commend you for hating the Nicolaitans. The hope would be that they would repent and that they would turn to Christ. But Christ says, not only is it good that they hate these works, but that he also hates the the works of the Nicolaitans. Christ is entirely opposed to anything that would be detrimental to the health of his bride. And that is why he hates these works. Next, let's move on to the criticism. They're doing very well making sure that uh, doctrinal doctrinal purity is in place. And yet he has a criticism. And it's quite a serious one. If you look with me at verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first, the criticism is, or rather, starting in verse 4, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first, and then they are called upon to remember. The criticism is that they have left their first love, that the uh, works of, of zeal and love that first characterized this church 
has slowly grown cold. And at this point in the history of the church, they're likely on either their their second or third generation of believers. And it's likely that the zealous works of love that characterized uh, the first generation were abundant because the gospel was new. The gospel was fresh. They were just uh, beginning to realize the great blessings that they had in Christ. And yet as time went on, it became commonplace. As time went on, their love for Christ began to cool. And the scriptures make an inseparable connection between our love for God and our love for other believers. So that if we're going to love God, we need to make sure that we're loving His people. And if we're loving His people, that's one of the ways that we love God. So I take this to be that their love for both Christ and His people is beginning to wane Perhaps you've attended a church service where the church has lost its first love. And it's, it's palpable. You walk in and you'll, you'll hear the sermon, you'll hear the hymn sung. Perhaps the offering is taken up, but it's marked by outward formalism. People no longer delight in one another's company within the church. As soon as the service is over, people just... Uh, make a break for the door as fast as they can. They don't necessarily want to interact a whole lot. Sacrificial giving and tithes may be diminished. Uh, perhaps they'll continue to give less and less and less, just so that, but they'll still give a little so that their conscience is not smitten. And the church seems to be running on cruise control. And so the love for one another continues to dwindle And of course, a love and concern for those who are lost is almost entirely lacking. And the reason why Christ brings this to the forefront and and addresses this with such uh, harsh words, as we will see, is because if a church does not have love, what does it have? 1 Corinthians 13, verse 2, And if I have prophetic powers as to understand all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have all faith, so as to move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. So it also is with the church. So Christ issues a command. He issues a command that they are to remember. To remember where they have fallen and repent to remember back to the works that were done at first when the church was in its infancy, where there were zealous, loving, good works that characterized the church for both Christ and His people. And they are to repent and turn the other way and do the works that they did at first. And with this command, Christ issues two things, both a warning And a promise. A warning and a promise. The warning comes halfway through verse 5. If not, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. What does it mean that Christ is going to come and remove the lampstand? Well, it's not Christ coming at the the end of the age. That is uh, still in the future. This would be a spiritual coming of Christ in history where he is going to 
remove the lampstand. And as one commentator put it, to have the lampstand removed is to experience spiritual blackout. To experience spiritual blackout and it will cease to be a true church. Several years ago when I was in Europe, I remember going into uh, many different large churches and cathedrals. And the sad thing is, if you go into some of the most beautiful churches in Europe today, what are they? They're museums. They're venues for art shows. And yet the gospel of Christ has not been heralded forth for years. And it is because at some point the lampstand was removed and it reached the point where the opportunity for revival has passed. The opportunity for revival has passed. And the buildings will remain, the brick and mortar will still be there, and yet the spiritual life has withered away. This is a very serious warning that Christ is issuing to the church. But in addition to this, we have a promise. We have a promise. Christ does not leave his people without a wonderful promise of restoration if they repent. Verse 7, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now we obviously know where the tree of life first shows up in our scriptures. As would the original hearers of this letter, they would have known the tree of life was in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. It was in the midst of the Garden of Eden. And it was after Adam and Eve sinned that they were barred from the Garden of Eden where they were sent out and they were prohibited from eating of the tree of life. Genesis 32, or rather 3 verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and also take of the tree of life and eat forever. And then the text speaks about how a cherubim was placed with a flaming sword to block the way so that they might not eat from it. Yet the promise of eating from the tree of life shows up here in chapter 2. And if you read on in the book of Revelation, you find the tree of life in chapter 21 and 22, uh, where it is in the new heavens and the new earth. And Christ promises to the believer who conquers that they will eat of this tree of life. The one who conquers is the one who overcomes, the one who is victorious. This is language of every single true believer that this promise stands for them. And yet the command to repent stands front and center. Wonderfully, if you study church history, and particularly the early church, uh, there's an early Christian by the name of Ignatius. And Ignatius wrote a letter to the church in Ephesus. Ignatius died about uh, 107 A.D., but he writes a letter to the church in Ephesus. And from this we learn two things. First, that the church was not snuffed out. That the church responded in faith to the words of Christ. That the church repented and turned back and did the works at first. 
If you read the letter, you also find out that they continued to maintain their high standards of theology and orthodoxy, which ought to forever banish from our minds that a church must choose one or the other. Either we will be orthodox or we will be loving. Now, a true church is both, and you never need to let hold of one or the other, but hold them together if it is a spirit-empowered church. And we also find out that the, from history that the church in Ephesus remained until about the uh, age of the Middle Ages, where eventually they were uh, taken over by some of the Turks. But that means that for hundreds of years, this church was faithful and continued to be a light shining in the midst of the dark world. They are the lampstand that is showing forth the light of Christ to a dark and dying world. So that is an encouragement for us. And so with that, I'd like to transition to uh, two, two final points of application, but really it's, it's three. I'd like us to leave with two points of exhortation and one point of encouragement. The first exhortation is be on guard. Be on guard. Why do I say that? The church in Ephesus had the Apostle Paul, the Apostle John, Timothy as their teachers. If a church with teachers like that can slide into cold Christianity, it can happen to any church. Uh, Just this past Friday, as uh, our elders uh, Larkin and Kevin and I were driving back from the General Assembly, uh, the radio got turned on. And we were listening to a well-known minister who was talking about marriage and giving points for basically how to have a successful marriage and how to avoid marital breakdown. And he said that out of those who have had marital breakdown, those who have gone through a divorce, he's seen a couple of common factors in those relationships. And one of the common factors is that either one or both of the spouses will say, after, the, after they've gone through the divorce and their marriage has been wrecked, I never thought it could happen to me. I always thought it would be someone else. I never thought it would happen to me. We do not want to be a church. Our particular church does not want to be one that says it could never happen to us. We must be on guard against cold Christianity. Be on guard. The second exhortation is that we would pray diligently that the Lord would enable us to make a fresh commitment to love the members of the local church as well as Christ with a warm and zealous love. That we would treasure the relationships that we have with our brothers and sisters within this church as well as the privilege of having a relationship with Christ. Richard Sibbs was a Puritan minister who wrote a short work called The Tender Heart. And at one point he raises the question, what do we do when we find that our hearts have grown cold in our love for Christ? If you acknowledge, yes, my heart has grown cold, what what can we do? And I will read a quote from his work. His answer is, 
As when things are cold, we bring them to the fire to heat and melt. So we bring our cold hearts to the fire of the love of Christ. Consider we are sins against Christ and Christ's love toward us. Dwell upon this meditation. Think what great love Christ hath shewed unto us and how little we have deserved. And this will make our hearts to melt and be pliable as wax before the sun. Think about all he has given us. Think about the innumerable blessings that have been bestowed upon us when we've done nothing to merit them. When we do that, to use a modern day illustration, it will be the equivalent of taking a chocolate bar and placing it upon the asphalt on a hot summer day in Mississippi, and it will become as pliable as wax. It will melt. And so we are to let our heart, or rather bring our heart to the love of Christ and let that fuel our love for him and his church. And the final encouragement, final point of application that I have for us is an encouragement with this promise. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. With each of the seven churches in the book of Revelation, we see a continuous uh, reiteration. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. These are real letters addressed to real churches in time, and yet uh, these are representative of the church as a whole, and they are uh, here for us so that we might, as as a church, be built up. But this promise that we have at the end of uh, the letter to Ephesus is for every Christian, is for every true believer that Christ himself offers to you the promise that you will eat from the tree of life, that there will be eternal life and fellowship with Christ. And though you may feel battered and bruised as you seek to conquer by the grace of God in this life, the day is coming where if you are a Christian, if you belong to Christ, that you will eat from that tree, you will live forever with Christ and his people. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your promises in your word. And Lord, we thank you enough that you love us enough to warn us when we go astray. Oh, Lord, we do pray that we would indeed seek to be a church that is a church that is marked by zealous good works of love for Christ and his people. We ask that you would make us a faithful church that heralds forth the gospel in this community. And Lord, that you would bless our labors. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.